This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for Igeret HaTshuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Chapter 9, and he explained that there are two levels of teshuva. We're discussing the idea of teshuva, of returning. And the word teshuva, he broke down the word teshuva is tashuv hay, return, restore the hay. The hay refers to the hay, the letter hay of Hashem's name, God's transcendent name, which is spelled yud hay vav hay. There are two hays. And therefore, there are two levels of teshuva. There's the lower level of teshuva, restoring the last hay, lower level of the hay, and then there's the higher level of teshuva, which is the first hay. And he explained that the, the four letters of Hashem's name correspond to the four different levels of the Svirot. The Yud represents Chachma, wisdom, and the hay represents Bina, which is understanding. So he says the higher level of the hay is represented by a teshuva that corresponds to bina, to understanding. And he quoted the Zohar. The Zohar says the actual Hebrew name for bina, for understanding, is also a breakdown of two words. Ben Yudke, the offspring of Yudke. It refers to the offspring of Yudke, which refers to wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding give birth to emotions. Intellect gives birth to emotions. So they are like the parents. Intellect, the creative mind, the creative ability is like the father. You know, provides the seed. And then the mother, which uh, the child develops because Bina takes the creative spark and develops it takes the yud, the dat, and turns it into a hay, fully develops it. And so that's, and between the two of them, the mother and the father, this gives birth to the emotions, which is the offspring. And he said that what's the higher level of teshuva? The higher level of teshuva is by using, engaging your mind, engaging your mind in the study of Torah. So by engaging your mind, you're restoring the hay, you're restoring the level of bina, and also, in the divine emanation, you're restoring God's hay. You're restoring the hay to its proper place. Because as a result of your sin, you affected all of God's names. And the higher level of teshuva is after you've already rectified the damage, which is the lower level of teshuva. You've restored the lower hay back to its proper place. But then there's the higher level of teshuva, which reaches even deeper and affects the divine mind, so to speak. How do we affect the divine mind? How do we uh, restore the hay to the, the first hay, the higher hay, the upper hay to its proper place? 
by us engaging our mind in the study of Torah. So that makes sense because the study of Torah engages the mind. You have to learn, you have to understand. But here the Zohar is saying it's not just studying Torah, it's studying Torah with love and awe of Hashem, which is the Ben Yudke, the offspring of Yudke. But love and awe is, has to do with the emotions. So how does that, why is that connected to the higher level of Teshuvah, which is restoring the hay, restoring the divine mind, so to speak, to its proper place, through our engaging our mind, through studying the Torah, why is it important, why is it so critical to study Torah with love and awe? That has to do with the emotions, which is represented by the Vav. There's six emotions. The Vav is also the connector. Vav connects the Vav connects the mind to action. The emotions bring down the resolution that you make in your mind into, into action, into, into real life. It, to create change in your life, you have to have emotions. That's why it's so much more difficult to change an emotion. It's so much easier to change your understanding than it is to change a character trait. Because that's very personal. <laughs> you know, that we don't change so quickly. That's more difficult to change. In our mind we can travel, we can wander, you know, we can go very far, we can travel places, but very little of it trickles down into action. If we live the way we ought to be, and the way we know we ought to be, and the way we'd like to be, even half of the way we knew we ought to be and we'd like to be, the world would be a paradise. But, you know, something gets lost in the translation. It's called the bottleneck, that's what's called the bottleneck. It's a very, it's a one-lane highway. From here, it doesn't get down to here. <laughs> it doesn't translate into action, the thought, speech, and action. So that's why it has to travel through the heart. The heart is the connectors, the vav. Vav in Hebrew connects, connects two words. Vav is the connector. It's like you have the train in front, and then if the train, the locomotive, is not connected, you can have 60 cars there, and they're all sitting... <laughs> It's sitting very pretty, and they're not going anywhere. The locomotive is, is running, and it's not pushing anything along because you forgot to connect. The conductor forgot to connect the trains with the locomotive. So the brain is going places, but if it's not connected to the heart, the, con- the heart is the connector. If the heart is not engaged, not involved, there's no emotions, there's no feelings, it doesn't translate into thought, speech, and action. It doesn't translate into our behavior, into our daily behavior. So that has to do with the emotions. What, what does that have to do with the hay? When we're discussing hay, so much so the Zohar says that the name, the Hebrew name for Bina, for understanding, is Ben Yudke. We're emphasizing the offspring of Yudke, the offspring, the emotions, which are the offsprings of the Yudke, of the wisdom and understanding. And that's the very name of Bina, of understanding. So we see that this is part and parcel of the understanding. This is part of the higher level of Teshuvah. Studying Torah, and that's what the Zohar says, it's not enough to study Torah. Studying Torah, but studying Torah with a love and a feeling for godliness, for the divine, the godliness in the Torah. Because there are many people who study Torah. Many brilliant people who study Torah. As a matter of fact, in the olden days, he wanted to be a priest. You had to, you had to know Talmud backwards and forwards. Didn't make you Jewish. There was nothing godly about you studying Torah. There are many brilliant people who study Torah, study Talmud. They love it. It's stimulating. It's, but there's no godliness. They can be actually very coarse people in their personal lives. They're not thinking about Hashem. They're not thinking about God. God doesn't even enter the picture. It's about ego. 
It's just a way to prove how brilliant I am. It's nothing to do with God, nothing to do with anything. It's a career. It's my career. Some people are engineers, some people are Talmudic scholars. It's a way for me to show off, to boast, to be respected, to make it's a career, to make money, to become a rabbi. It has nothing to do with God. They're not thinking about God. They're not the famous story with the uh, the first generation of Hasidim. They were all like rebels because they didn't grow up Hasidim. It was the first generation. So one of the brightest students in the yeshiva ran away and he went and he studied. And he went to Mizrich and he became a Hasid. When he came back to town, he tried to avoid his former dean of the yeshiva because you know he knew it's very un- uncomfortable. The dean will want to know why he ran away, what happened. But you know you're living in a shtetl. Inevitably, one day they bump into each other. This prized student. He turns to him and says, What happened? Why did you run away from me? You loved me and I loved you, you know, and I loved teaching you, and you were the, the best head that I had. Why, why did you run? What did you learn in Mizrich that I couldn't teach you? So the student looks at his teacher. He says, You know, in Mizrich, I learned how to be a mind reader. I learned how to read minds. You couldn't, you couldn't do that. So I ran to Mizrich to learn how to read minds. He says, Yes. Okay, tell me what I'm thinking about. He says, you're thinking about God. He says, absolutely not. That's why I left. (laughs) His whole studying of Torah was all, uh, it was a great game. It was intellectual. It was all about himself, ego. Or get together, share in the world to come. God had nothing to do with it. It's what can God do for me, maybe. Lord, get me high. But what, God is not about God. It's not about the Zohar says it's not enough to study Torah, but you have to study Torah with love and with feeling and with a sense of awe for the divinity in the Torah, the godliness of Torah. This is not math, science, not a chess game. This is, this is godly, this is holy. You, you're learning the infinite, you're connecting with the infinite, you're touching the divine. So the question is, why, why is that part of Bina? Why is that part of understanding? That, that's represented by the Vav of God's name, the connector, the six emotions, which is the numerical value of the letter Vav. Why is that part and parcel of hey? So much so that it's in the name, Binas Ben Yudke, the offspring of wisdom and understanding. This is what the Rebbe addresses in this chapter, chapter 9. The Alter Rebbe explained at the conclusion of the previous chapter that through Shuva Elah, the higher level of repentance, the soul is totally cleansed and purified. It then ascends and cleaves to Hashem with the same degree of unity that it enjoyed before it descended into the body. Furthermore, the Alter Rebbe quoted the Zohar to the effect that Shuva Ilah involves studying Torah with awe and love of Hashem. In the fourth chapter, however, he explained that Shuva Ilah involves reinstating the higher level A of the Tetragrammaton, what possible connection does this have with studying Torah out of love and fear of Hashem when these two spiritual emotions are related to the letter Vav? In order to resolve this seeming anomaly, Alter Rebbe will now explain that the love and fear discussed in the present chapter are generated intellectually. They result from meditation upon Hashem's greatness and are thus the offspring of Bina. It is specifically this kind of love and fear that unites the hay with the vav, the intellect with the resulting emotions. The explanation of this subject 
levels of love and fear are related to the upper hay is discussed frequently in the Zohar and Tikkun. The Bina is the higher level of the Shuba, the mother crouching over the chicks. Bina is the mother of her offspring, the love and fear of her. Okay, family. so he's saying there's a difference. There's two types of loves. There is a love which comes natural, instinctive for the Jew. The Jew, the Jew within us, the Jew within the Jew, the Jewish soul, which is a godly soul, naturally and instinctively connects with godliness. We get excited. You can't explain it. Why does a Jew get excited? Why is a Jew dancing in Simcha's Torah? You know, imagine someone who's deaf walks into a dancing hall and sees everyone dancing. He'll think everyone is nuts. He can't hear the music. He doesn't understand why adults jumping around like uh, playing uh, silly jumping and he can't hear the music. So someone who can't relate doesn't understand. In Simcha's Torah the Jew gets all excited and our soul stirs and we dance because he doesn't hear the music. But a Jew instinctively hears the music. We just have a godly soul and we get excited about godly things. You can't explain it logically. We just get excited. Like we know it's a godly day. We finished the Torah. We concluded the whole entire Torah. And we just get excited and we start dancing. When a Jew does a mitzvah, he gets excited. On a Jewish holiday, you're sitting at the Seder, at the Passover Seder. Something, you feel something inside. It's not just you dressing up nicely and eating delicious food. There's something happening. Something is like you're experiencing something inside. When a woman lights the Shabbat candle, something lights up in her soul. If you light it Wednesday night, nothing happens. Thursday night, nothing happens. But you light it Friday before Shabbat, before sunset, something magical happened. So that's instinctive. That's natural. You can't explain it logically. This, it's just a natural instinct. The Jewish soul is drawn to godly things. We get excited about godly things. When we do an act of selflessness, an act of goodness and kindness, we get excited. You can't explain it logical. logic. Logic doesn't dictate you should be selfless on the contrary. But it's, it's just natural and instinctive for us to do godly things, to do good things, to do the right thing. Even to the detriment of our own well-being, we just know it's the right thing to do and we do it. That's a natural instinctive love. But then there's a love that comes as a result of understanding. When something shifts, when something clicks inside of you, when you understand something, when you start challenging your basic assumptions and start realizing that reality is not what it appears to be on the surface. There's a much deeper reality. And therefore it changes your whole perspective. And based on that transformation, that understanding, that deep penetrating understanding, that gives birth to an emotion. You know, we look at the world. But how does the physicist look at this world? You know, to us, everything appears to be solid. The physicist understands and knows that this table is actually 99.9% empty. It's made up of atoms, which we can't see. It's extrasensory. There's no telescope in the world. There's no microscope powerful enough that we can see an atom. It's extrasensory. And you go deeper into the atom, the atom is 99% empty. It's just the nucleus of the atom, and it... It, it circulates so quickly and it, it, it creates the sense of solidity and 
But the truth is, matter is energy. Nothing is the way it appears to be. This world appears to be fragmented, yet in the atomic level, everything is interrelated, everything is interconnected. This world appears to be rigid. In reality, in fact, the world is dynamic. The energy is constantly, at this moment, as we speak, transforming itself into this table, into you, into me, into this book, into that cup of water. Nothing is the way it appears to be. But this you can understand with your, the, the eye of your mind. If your mind truly understands and starts grasping the inner reality, and you realize that the world is truly alive. And just like when you look, when you look at a person, right? When I see you, what am I looking at? Of course, physically, I'm looking at you, I'm looking at your body. But what am I really looking at? What am I really seeing? I'm not seeing your body. I'm looking at you. The body is a piece of clay. A dead body is a corpse. There's nothing. When I'm looking at you, I'm not looking at you, at your body. Of course, that's all I see is your body. But I'm looking at you, your personality, your character, your smile, your anger, you, 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 who you really are. Not your soul, not your body. Your body is just a vehicle, a container that's carrying your soul. But your soul is so transparent. When I see you, I'm, I see your soul. I see your individuality, your personality, what makes you, who you are. Not your body. The body is nothing. What's the body? The body is physical. The body is just a container. And then when you realize with your mind, you open your eyes and you start realizing and perceiving the proper way to look at the world. We are just a microcosm. But from the microcosm, I can extrapolate the same as true of the macrocosm. How should I look at the world? The world is just a body. And therefore, when I look at the world, suddenly I look at trees, I look at life, I look at animal life, I look at human life. I, I look at the whole world. What do I start seeing? The soul of the world. I see God. Just like the soul. You've never seen the soul. You've never touched the soul. But when I look at you, I see your soul. I see your, your individuality, your personality. That's your soul. That's intangible. But that's what I see. So you look at the world, even though we've never seen God, and God has never spoken to us, and we've never touched God, and we can't touch God, but I realize that this whole world is just, just a body. And therefore, what do I see when I look at the world? I start seeing things different. I see the soul. I see how the world is alive. The world is dynamic. The world is vibrant. Who creates the world? Who sustains the world? Who, who gives life to the world? Just like the body. Do you lift a pinky? Who, who lifted the pinky? It's your soul. The body is a corpse. The body is, it doesn't move. You don't lift a pinky. It's your soul moving. So you realize that not only God created the world. God creates the world, sustains the world. No one lifts a pinky in this world without the soul of the world, which is God. God runs the world, is in control of the world, is in charge of the world. And suddenly you start seeing, with the eye of your mind, you start perceiving a different reality, deeper reality genuinely and it evokes a feeling suddenly now you start feeling now you feel a love and an attraction towards godliness because now you want to connect with something real something godly what's reality what's real godliness that's that's life i want life you want to feel alive you want to feel vibrant you want to feel energetic you want to feel you connected with hashem the deeper your connection with hashem 
the more alive you are. And the more successful you'll be. Whatever you do, as Hashem says in the Torah, you study Torah, you do mitzvot, you will be blessed. It's not just an external thing. It's almost a consequence. The more plugged in you are, the more connected you are, the deeper your connection. The more alive you are, and the healthier you are, and the more blessed you are, and the more financially blessed you are. And everything in your life will be blessed in every area in your life because you're connected to, the, to reality. So suddenly you start feeling a love and an attraction. And you're repulsed by anything that's the antithesis of godliness. Anything that goes against the will of Hashem, you automatically repulse. It's like, it's like putting my finger into, into an electric socket. I'm, I'm going to burn myself, I'm going to hurt myself. It just... So, this is an emotion that's based on understanding. And a deep understanding. And this emotion is superior to the emotion that's just natural and instinctive, which is almost an animalistic emotion. Animals feel, but it's an it's instinct. Children are instinctive. Children can are not capable of developing mature emotions. That's what children are mature. They have instinct. They can be brilliant. Some children are more brilliant than some 90-year-olds. But, but they're not mature. Because it's all instinct. It's only when you grow up you develop the ability develop a mature emotion based on understanding. And the emotion that's based on understanding doesn't change, doesn't, doesn't, you know, it's much more solid, it's much more, because it's based on a real understanding. And once you start seeing something in a certain way, once you understand 2 plus 2 is 4, you'll never look at it the same. You can never understand otherwise. Once you start perceiving the reality of godliness, and you start seeing how real it is, and how relevant it is, and how suddenly that's what you're attracted to that becomes reality to you and that's some, that they're staying power to it this is an emotion that has a foundation this is something you can build your life on because it's based on, 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 on a deep understanding it's not going on once you get it it's not changing it's something you can build on and something real so that's what the Zohar says he says the mother crouches on the chicks the mother refers to the emotion, the intellect, which gives birth to the chicks, which are the emotion. But the difference is that here the mother remains crouching over the chicks. Emotions that are based on intellect retain that flavor, the flavor of intellect. Since the whole emotion is based on intellect, so it's not like the mother gave birth to the child and the mother is gone. You don't see the influence of the intellect. No. Emotions that are based on the intellect, even in the emotions, you can see the, the influence of the intellect. The mother remains crouching on the chicks. That's the significance of what he's saying here. That the intellect remains, the influence of the intellect remains. Because emotions that are instinctual, ultimately you haven't really changed because it's based on your natural instinct. In order to truly grow and to truly mature and to truly develop and to truly change, it's only with the power of the intellect that we can truly change. You know, for a Democrat to become a Republican, (laughs) for a Republican to become a Democrat, 
it's only truly to truly cha- go against your instinct. Most people never change their instincts. It's very difficult to change your instinct. Your bias. You know, people end up reading the papers they naturally and instinctively are drawn towards. <laughs> so, so you, you know, you're just following your emotions, you're following your instinct, there's no real change. Like animals never change. Animals never change. But a human being has the capacity, because God blessed us with intellect, pure intellect, we have the capacity to radically change our whole perspective and to act in ways that are completely unpredictable and may appear to be unnatural to us. Because we understand something, therefore we have choice. That's why we have choice. Animals don't have choice. They're trapped, whatever their instinct, whatever their nature is. If we act animalistically, so then we're trapped. You'll always be you're so predictable and you'll never change. Years, decades go by and there's no movement, there's no change. But when you have the power of intellect, you can look at things objectively. You can look at things honestly. And you can see things purely from a purely objective, detached point of view. And you can, go, you can be very far-ranging. And in your mind, you can make leaps. You can go beyond your bounds. You can, go, you can change and move in leaps and bounds. Because that's the power of intellect. And then you're able to change an emotion that's based on intellect. You're also able to go beyond. It has the flavor of intellect. It's going beyond your nature, beyond your instinct, beyond your ego. It's a, it's a solid emotion based on a solid understanding, and a very deep understanding, and a very objective and honest understanding of reality the way it is. Removing all your biases. Emotions are not capable of doing it. An emotional person can't, can't overcome his biases. You know, he's a, he's a biased person. Unless you introduce the intellect, it's only when a person totally steps back and is able to go beyond his bias and his instincts, is able to see reality, to look at reality objectively, and to truly understand the truth without any personal bias. And then, based on that truth, you develop a feeling, then you're able to really go beyond yourself. So the emotions that are based on this understanding retain the flavor of intellect, retain the ability of the intellect to go beyond yourself and to act in ways that are completely unpredictable. A person who by nature is not kind is able to truly develop a kind streak only by the power of intellect. And then the emotion that he develops towards kindness also retains the clarity and the depth of that intellect. So the mother remains hovering over the chicks. This type of emotion, the source of the, of the offsprings, remains with the children. You can tell that this is an emotion that's based on intellect. It's not just touchy-feely, natural, instinctive. There's, you see here, there's a depth here that you don't see in a natural type of emotion. There's an intellectual quality. One arts to meditate profoundly and with concentration on the greatness of Hashem, whose comprehension allows the sense of intellectual awe and love on rational grounds. Ubetuv tam vadas. Tuv tam vadas means with a good taste and with a, a feeling an understanding, more than understanding, an understanding, a feeling for the subject. 
And that's really the heart of the matter. The difference between an instinctive type of love, a natural type of love, and a love that's based on intellect and understanding, on based on deep meditation and deep concentration, and on truly understanding, profoundly understanding the greatness of Hashem and understanding godliness, is that this emotion has a lot of flavor. It's a lot of tam. You know, the Hebrew word tam is a lot of taste. You know, it's based on something very real. It's based on a very deep understanding, an understanding that changed your way of understanding things, changed your way of perceiving things. So there's a depth here, there's a flavor, there's, there's a color, there's a, it's a three-dimensional type of emotion. There's, there's a maturity to it. There's, versus a natural instinctive love. It's almost a childish type of love. It's natural instinctive. It's very raw. It's very powerful. There are advantages to natural instinctive love also. You know, a natural love and an instinctive love is very powerful, very deep-rooted. But it's very raw. And it's underdeveloped. It doesn't really... But the, uh, an emotion versus an emotion that's based on intellect has a lot of taste to it. A lot of time. It's juicy. It's, 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 it's fully mature, fully ripened, fully developed. There's an adult quality to it. There's a mature quality to it. There's a solidness to it. So this is the advantage this is the type of love that we're discussing here. And, for example, yeah, continue, the love is that of the verse. This love is that of the verse, to love the Lord your God because He is your life. A love based on a reason. In other words, the Torah is telling us, it's not only giving us the reason for the love. What arouses the love, what will bring you to love God when you realize that God is your life. What do you want in your life? You want life, you want energy, you want vitality, you want excitement, you want thrill. There's only one source for that. The source of life. So run to Shul and you'll feel alive, you feel rejuvenated, you feel connected. But he's saying it's not only that that's the cause of the love, that that's the origin of the love. But that's what defines the love. Because a love that's based on intellect, on awareness, the intellect and the awareness defines what kind of love it is. Just like when you have in fear. There's a difference, right? If you're in awe because you're standing next to the king, next to the most powerful person in the world, whose your, 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 your life is in your hands, you're just in awe when you're standing in the presence of a king. I mean, today we can't relate to it. <laughs> when you're standing in the presence of a powerful leader, a powerful person... It's one type of awe. When you're standing in the presence of Einstein, there's another type of awe. You're not afraid, it's not going to harm you, it's not going to hurt you. But when you're standing in the presence of greatness, you feel insignificant by comparison. You, you're in awe. So it's not just the awareness, it doesn't just trigger the awe. But the awe is the same. No. It's a different quality. Every awe has its own quality. It defines... The reason for the awe, the awareness that brings about the awe, is what defines the awe. It gives it the flavor. It's a different experience. The experiencing of being in awe of a king or of a powerful person, or the experience of being in awe of a genius, of a, of, of a great person, there's a different flavor to the feeling. Because the feeling is based on awareness and understanding. It's not just natural and instinctive. So too, when the Torah is telling us, love your God because God is your life, it's not only because God is your life, that's the trigger that triggers your love. But the love is the same. No. 
This is what defines and characterizes the type of love. A love that's based on a deep understanding that God is my life, and God is my energy. There's a, there's a flavor to that love. There's a different energy to that love. It's a different experience, a different quality. So the emotions that come from the intellect are defined by the intellect. The mother remains hovering over the chicks. It retains the clarity and the depth of intellect. And that's why it changes you and affects you so profoundly. So much so that you can even change your nature. Because human nature is we love ourselves. What's the most common word in the English language? I. I pod and I pad and I <laughs> iTunes. Everything is I. I. So by nature, human instinct, by nature, we're all about ego. I. Selfishness, self-centeredness, self-absorption. You don't have to go to school to learn to be selfish and self-centered, self-absorbed. It comes natural to 7 billion people. And, and it deepens with time. Every meal that we have and every day we grow older, we become more selfish and more self-centered and more self-absorbed. We care more about the, what happens to our own pinky than millions of people dying in Africa. It's just human nature. Suddenly, because God is my life, suddenly you feel a love for Godliness. And it turns you into something selfless. You become selfless, less selfless. You become God-centered. And instead of being I-centered, ego-centered, you become more God-centered. This is a radical transformation. It goes contrary to your nature and instinct. But this is the power of an emotion that's based on intellect. An emotion that's based on intellect could radically transform your ego. He will not be content with the endowed latent love alone. This is concealed in the heart of every Jew and needs but to be revealed. Such a worshiper, though, creates instead a love of God to his own intellectual Exactly. The natural instinctive love that every Jew has naturally because we have a Jewish soul, the Jew within the Jew, the godly soul. And therefore naturally and instinctively we respond to godliness. When we have a godly experience, we can't explain it. We're standing at the Western Wall, you know, reduces us to tears. You can't explain it. We just respond. When you have a godly experience, you just respond. You come to, on a holiday, you just respond. You move, your soul stirs. You can't always explain it. But which part of us is moved and which part of us stirs? Our godly soul. Our ego soul, our natural soul remains completely indifferent. Maybe we put it asleep, it falls asleep during the experience. But it, it's not moved, it's not affected by that, by that. It doesn't have that nature and that instinct. The ego soul, the natural soul, naturally and instinctively is drawn towards materialism, indulgence, hedonism. It's the force of gravity pulling us downwards. It's the godly soul. It's like the flame, the candle that's, that's going upwards. But that's the nature of the godly soul, not the nature of the ego soul. So the, there are moments in our life when the, God, when the ego soul, thankfully, thank God, is dormant. And then the godly soul could flourish and, and bloom and emerge on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot and Zimchas Torah and Shabbat. We're having a holy godly experience. What does it do to our natural soul or ego soul? Nothing. Versus a love that's based on intellect. has Because God is my life. Once my mind starts perceiving reality the way it truly is, honestly and objectively, without any bias, which goes completely contrary to my instinct. My instinct tells me it's all about ego, it's all about I. 
comes along the mind and starts perceiving and understanding that the ultimate reality is God. There's no other reality. God is the soul of the world. God is the reality of the world. There's nothing else. When you truly understand it and truly get it, it has the ability to drastically, radically change your emotion. Suddenly, you start feeling a love and an attraction toward godly things. You're drawn to study Torah, to do mitzvot, and it's not a burden. Suddenly, it's, it's like life-sustaining. My life depends on it. A day goes by and I haven't studied Torah, I feel hollow, shallow, and empty. A day goes by, I haven't put on tefillin. I didn't connect with something godly. I didn't do something godly. I didn't do an act of tzedakah. I didn't do an act of kindness. I didn't give someone a smile and he's a smile. Suddenly I feel hollow, shallow, and empty. This goes contrary to nature. But that's the power of an emotion that's based on intellect. It reaches to the entire person. It becomes my life. That's what the Torah says. God is your life. Life touches every part of you. Every part of you is alive. All 100 trillion cells. Down to your fingernail, your toenail. Life is all-encompassing. So when God becomes your life, suddenly every part of you feels alive. It reaches not only to your godly soul, it reaches to your natural soul, to your ego, and it transforms you. And it radically shifts your whole perception of what's real, what you're attracted to, what you consider good, and what you're repulsed by. Suddenly now, anything that's the antithesis of godliness, lies, politics, superficiality, ego, arrogance, self-absorption, materialism, hedonism, suddenly you're repulsed by it. Las Vegas, you're repulsed by it. You see how empty it is and how foolish and how shallow and how skin deep and how just a dead end goes nowhere. And suddenly the shul looks very attractive. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and instead of using your money suddenly you, you, you give tzedakah and you give it joyfully if God blessed you with wealth you're happy you're happy it makes you it fulfills you to be able to do something godly even though it goes contrary it goes contrary to human nature it's my hard earned money I should give away my hard earned money to tzedakah Okay, I'll write my $18 check. <laughs> I'll march in Israel Day Parade. I'll buy a bun. But to really dig into my pocket and to really give from my hard-earned money 10%, 20%, if God blessed you, you can give much more. Maybe keep 10% to give 90%. I mean, this, this, and you do it joyfully. This is only possible when your love is based on understanding. If your love to God is based on instinct, your ego won't let you do it. You can't do that. It's nice you can love God on Shabbos, when you can't touch money, when you can't, when you can't write a check. <laughs> so your godly soul can love God. But Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, now my animal soul, my ego, is in charge. So my ego doesn't get it. My ego is not interested. He does not move. He's not inspired. Godly things don't inspire our natural soul. He understands money. He understands power. He understands materialism. That we understand. Godliness is too abstract. It's too otherworldly. I can't relate to it. But when your love is based on intellect, it totally transforms you. It reaches and penetrates every part of you. That's the advantage of a love that's based on intellect. Then even in the emotion, you feel the quality of the intellect. That ability to, just like the intellect has the ability to go beyond your bias and to radically take a position that seems completely 
contrary to your nature and to your instinct because based on truth intellect is looking for truth wherever the truth will lead me a true scientist officially follows the truth wherever it leads them those scientists are very rare and hard to find but officially a genuine scientist is someone who will take wherever the truth will lead him without any bias even if it goes contrary to everything that he learned till now today it's almost it's hard to find such a person people claim to be scientists honesty, objectivity, reality without any bias, wherever it will take them whatever the cost today there's so much dogma in the name of science it's, it's pretty it's, it's, it's pretty uh, shocking but this is the real power of intellect, of genuine intellect that's the difference in the career scientist it's all about career, ego, power money, approval or a genuine scientist who just has a, a search, a hunger for truth and he's ready to sacrifice whatever it takes I don't care if it's popular or not popular if it's, people agree, don't agree I'm just going to follow the truth wherever it takes him. where do you find such a person today? you have to look with, with search with candles you have to send out search parties to find such a person it doesn't exist, hardly everything today is so political and so you, you can't get a straight answer everything is so biased and political and calculated and this influence and that influence and you know that's why people lost all respect for because we don't know if we, where it's coming from is this the dogma is this like the official dogma is this reality the genuine scientists are crying today it's, you know because they, they look today and say everything today is all political there's, there's very little honest honest science going on and honest scientists are ready to put everything on the line their name, their reputation, their money their careers just for the truth, for the sake of truth but that's the true power of intellect that's the true scientist so when you have the ability to really look at something really honestly and objectively you can come to a conclusion that's, that's counterintuitive godliness is counterintuitive for us ego is very intuitive but to, to make godliness the center of our life and based on that I should feel attracted to anything godly and based on that I should change my behavior and start acting like a Jew living like a Jew speaking like a Jew thinking like a Jew embracing wholeheartedly the Torah and the mitzvot 100% all 613 mitzvot this seems to be counterintuitive it's a radical step you have to have a lot of guts. You have to have a lot of spirit. You have to be a Jew. <laughs> to be a Jew. <laughs> to be a rebel, like Abraham and Sarah. That's the spirit. But that comes from the intellect. Abraham understood God. Abraham had no background. Abraham had no community. Yet on his own, with his own mind, he started to perceive and realize that there's a reality beyond the surface reality and beyond the conventional wisdom that he was taught and the paganism and the idolatry that was all around him and he questioned it and challenged it and he was thrown into the fire for it but it all started with his intellect, with his mind and then when, you, when your emotions are based on the intellect then with your emotions you can also go create an emotion that's almost contrary to your nature and instinct and that's very powerful and that's an emotion that has tam and das, has flavor it has maturity. It has depth. 
This is the type of emotion that the Zohar is talking about. Too. So too with fear and terror of Hashem, or shame as, it, as is known. This is a deeper form of awe in which one feels abashed in Hashem's presence, hence fearing to rebel against Him by sinning. When one's spiritual emotions of love and fear are born in the mind, then... He actually says three, uses three terminologies for fear. Fear, terror, and shame. Fear is in the mind. It's more an abstraction. You're afraid. You're afraid of a calamity. You're afraid of, of a financial calamity. You're afraid. It's a fear. It's more of an intellectual fear. You're afraid who's going to win the next elections. You're afraid. It's a fear. <laughs> then comes terror. Terror is the bandit. If, if, if you're in the park and it's dark and someone is threatening you right in front of you, your heart starts pounding. That's terror. It's not, that's not intellectual. It's not intellectual. There's nothing abstract about it. You feel the terror. Suddenly the tsunami start comes, comes down on you. You're in terror. Your heart is... Your heart rate goes up. You're, you're, you feel, it's palpable. Terror is palpable. And then comes a, a form of awe which is like shame. Which is when you're in the presence of greatness. When you're standing in the presence of greatness. It's like an inner shame. You know, when you're standing in the presence of the Rebbe, you just feel an inner shame because suddenly you feel you're not living up to your potential. You're not living up to the best of who you could be. When you're standing in the presence of greatness, of a person who is living up to his potential and is fully developed, and then you realize in our own personal lives how there's a grand canyon between our potential and the way we actually are, our actuality, you feel ashamed. What have I done with my life? What have I wasted my energy on? Why, have, why didn't I develop myself? Why did I only barely scratch the surface of who I really am, what I could be, what I should be, when I'm standing in the presence of greatness of a person who's fully developed, was given every talent that God gave him and developed it 100% and here I am sleeping on the job sleepwalking through life you feel ashamed ashamed in, in that presence so that's like an inner inner instinct and that's one of the natures of the Jewish people natures of the Jewish people it says the sign of a Jew there are three signs we are naturally we are we are Rachmanim we are compassionate we are Baishanim we are going with Hasadim, we are kind, and we are Baishanim, we are shamed. Jews are disproportionately represented in all the charities in America. Uh, we give, in proportion to our population, Jews give much more percentage-wise, way beyond any other group. Um, that's our nature. We're just compassionate, we give, we empathize with people. And we are by shun. We are shameful. Shame. It may come to surprise as many people because actually the Talmud says elsewhere Jews are very strong people. We have a lot of chutzpah. Jews are known for chutzpah. I don't know if Jews are known for shame. But Jews are definitely known for chutzpah. Um, it's interesting in the first chapter in the Tanya, the Al-Tarebi, 
when he speaks of the Jewish nature, you can go to LessonsInTanya.com, chapter 1, I believe it's the third lesson. There, the Alter Rebbe just mentions two of these um, two of these traits that Jews naturally have. He says Jews are kind and Jews are compassionate. He omits the third one, that Jews are shameful, because it seems to be a contradiction. Here the Talmud says that Jews are chutzpahdik by nature, very strong, fierce, fierce by nature. And yet here it says that we're embarrassed. So the, the, the Marsha, the Talmudic commentary explains that naturally Jews are chutzpahdik. Jews are fierce. We're fierce people. To overcome. Jews are tough. You know, to overcome what we had to overcome, we had to endure, we had to survive. Jews are tough people. The Jewish people are tough. The Jewish women are also tough. You know, to overcome what we had to overcome, we had to be tough. You had to be strong. You had to be very strong. But shame came with the giving of the Torah. The giving of the Torah the experience of the giving of the Torah and the experience of studying Torah. When you study Torah, you're in the presence of God. That is like being in the presence of greatness. When you're in the presence of greatness, it reduces you to size. You suddenly feel like insignificant. You feel ashamed. You feel a certain sense of uh, soul-searching, of honesty. Of You know you're not living up to your potential. So shame, we don't mean shame is not insecurity or diffidence or I'm an insecure person and we're bashful bashfulness it comes from insecurity that's, that's not the shame we're talking about Jews are not insecure Jews are very secure confident chutzpahdik fierce strong shame comes from an inner sense of shame from an inner sense of honesty when you're standing in the presence of greatness suddenly you feel a deep inner shame Am I living up to my true potential? Look how far I am from the way I ought to be, from the way I could be, the way I know I should be and I could be and the way I ought to be. And I'm making all sorts of excuses why it's impossible and I can't. And of course, if God demands it from me, nothing is impossible. God wouldn't give us a demand that's impossible. It's in my mind. most Most of the time it's in my mind. I think it's impossible. It's no such thing. So there's an inner sense of shame, an inner sense of honesty. So shame comes from an inner sense of honesty. A person who doesn't have the capacity to be honest never feels ashamed. The Talmud says if a person sins and he feels a sense of shame, all his sins are forgiven. Because shame comes from an inner sense of honesty. At least you feel regret. You feel you know you're doing something wrong. You feel you're not happy with yourself. It's a moment of weakness, so you sin. But there's a certain honesty that's there. When a person starts turning sin into a mitzvah and there's no shame and there's no sense of regret and there's no sense because you can't face yourself honestly. So this is shame. It's an inner sense of shame. And that's why the Alter Rebbe in chapter 1 omits the third one, shame. Because there he's talking about the nature of a Jew. A Jew is born with nature. By nature we're kind and compassionate, but not shame. Shame doesn't come naturally to us. Naturally we're fierce. We're fierce people. We're strong people. We're not bashful and insecure. But the shame comes with the Torah. When you study Torah and you have a godly connection, then you feel a sense of inner shame, which keeps you honest, keeps you grounded, keeps you down to earth, keeps you real, keeps you humble. Rabbi? Yes. Um, can't people also learn shame in a dysfunctional way? Yes. That, that's, that's, why, right, that's why we're qualifying. 
we're not, it's not a shame that comes naturally. A shame that comes naturally could be dysfunctional. I'm insecure, I'm a diffident person, I don't have any self-confidence. So I'm bashful. That's not the right. So you put it very well. That's not the shame we're talking about. That's why that answers the question. Here, the truth is, the Jews by nature, we're not bashful, we're not diffident, we're not insecure, we're not dysfunctional. The strength of the Jewish people is our families. That This has always been our secret. When you come from a healthy, loving family, you don't suffer from, from dysfunction. Most dysfunctions, you'll trace it, it comes from the family, from a dysfunctional family. But this is the strength of the Jew. We've, oh, we've had wonderful families, loving families. If you come from a wonderful, loving family, you don't suffer from dysfunctions. We, we don't suffer. That's not our, that's not, that doesn't come natural to us. This, that type of shame is dysfunction. And that's not the shame that, that, that the Talmud is discussing. That's the answer to the question. Why, on the contrary, Jews by nature are strong and fierce and confident. And that's why in the first chapter in the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe omits shame. Because it doesn't come naturally to us. A shame that comes naturally means that's difference. That's a dysfunctional type of shame. You're weak. And you're weak-minded and you're ashamed and embarrassed and lack of confidence. That's not the shame we're talking about. Here we're talking about a shame that comes from strength. A shame that's beautiful. You know, man is the only creature in the universe that, that's, that's embarrassed. That turns red. Animals are not ashamed. <laughs> when was the last time you saw an animal turn red? Animal is not the capacity of shame. People who don't have the capacity of shame on the level of animals. They parade in public. There's no shame. Jews have the capacity to be ashamed. This comes from strength. This is not weakness. This comes from a deep understanding. That's what he's saying. It's a a feeling that's based on intellect, on awareness, on maturity. This is a mature type of thing. A mature person has the ability to be ashamed. When you're confronted with the truth, you're ashamed. You have the capacity to be embarrassed. Embarrassed with him for yourself. That I'm not living up to the, the way I could be, the way I should be. When you stand in the presence of greatness, you feel ashamed. That's a healthy shame. That's what keeps us grounded. That's what keeps us humble and humane, humane and human and real. Otherwise, we become so arrogant. We become so supercilious. We become, you know, we start, cre- we start living, you know, we start creating fantasies. We start living, we become legends in our own mind and we become impossible. Impossible to live with, impossible to be with. That's what happens when you don't have shame. So this shame is very healthy. But it's a shame that's based on awareness. It's a shame that's based on maturity and understanding. That's what he's saying. A shame that's based on awareness and understanding. This is the type of emotions that we're discussing here. Then, conclude, page 1092, this first paragraph. The mother crouching over the chicks. Dina has given birth and covers over her offspring the love and fear of God. Exactly. So this is the type of emotion where the mother, the influence of the mother remains hovering over the chick. Even in the emotion you can see the influence of the mother. And therefore this is the type of emotion that can change a person, genuinely change a person. The emotions that come instinctively and naturally, that doesn't change you. Because it's almost animalistic. And which part of you feels that instinct and feels that attraction to, it's only your godly soul but your animal soul your natural soul your ego soul remains cold and indifferent untouched and unmoved by the whole experience but the type of emotion the love of Hashem and the awe of Hashem that's based on intellect this is a type of emotion that changes the person 
it reaches and affects the whole entire person. Shame is something that touches you. Your ego, you feel ashamed. It's, it, it's very personal. And therefore, it's like life. Just like life itself is all-encompassing, it, it, it encompasses the whole entire person. So a love of Hashem that's defined by because God is your life, and therefore the emotion itself, that's what qualifies the emotion, that's what defines the emotion. And you feel the flavor and the maturity of the, of the understanding of the intellect. This is the type of feeling and emotion that can actually change and change your whole being. And then your whole being becomes connected to God. And that's why the Zohar says, this is the higher level of teshuva. The higher level of teshuva is the hey, the understanding. But the Zohar says it's not enough to understanding and to study Torah, but it's to study Torah with the love and awe of Hashem. Because what kind of awe and love are we discussing here? It's all in the name. Bina. Bina is two words. Ben Yudke. We're talking a type of a ben, an offspring, an emotion that's an offspring of Yudke. It's an offspring of the intellect, of the wisdom and understanding. An emotion that's an offspring of the wisdom and understanding where the mother hovers over the offspring of the chicks and it's a, you feel the flavor and the maturity and the depth and the richness of the intellect. This is more an emotion that has to do with intellect. This is not the regular emotion. The vav represents the natural emotions, the instinctual emotion. That's a lower level. But here we're talking about emotions that are based on the intellect. Emotions that are based on the intellect, they're included. They're part of the word, they're part of bina. This is all part of the higher level of hay, the higher level of teshuva, restoring the hay to its proper place. It's not enough to study Torah, but by studying Torah with a sense of the divine, with this appreciating the divine, of the, the godliness within the Torah. It's not just math, science, sharpening your mind, sharpening your brain, that you can do with chess, that you can do with studying math, science, physics. It's, but when you study Torah, you're touching the divine. So you study it with a sense of awe, sense of feeling God's presence. And therefore you study the Torah with holiness, with a sense of love. And therefore the Torah that you study will refine you and will change you. And not only change your godly soul, inspire your godly soul, but will actually change your ego. As the Talmud says, Torah has two effects on the person. It strengthens your godly soul and it softens up your ego. Your raw nature. When a person studies Torah properly, we're all born with raw natures. We all have our rough edges. Every one of us. But when you study Torah with a sense of the divine, it makes you into a better person. You become a more refined person, a more gentle person, a good person, a kinder person. It changes you. Not only changes your godly soul, it changes your human nature. Your whole being becomes transformed and elevated. Like fine, fine silk, fine, fine leather. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com